episode 23 of ICO 41, weekly in-depth analysis of initial coin offerings. Welcome to episode 23 of ICO 41. My name is Owen Scott, and I'm your podcast host. This podcast generally focuses deeply on a single ICO each week and presumes some knowledge of the basics of blockchain technology. What's a little different about this podcast is that we read the white papers, we investigate the background of the team, and if we can, we spend time communicating directly with the team in question, and then we report to you in detail. As always, this podcast is not intended as investment advice, nor is information to lead to any particular action whatsoever. Our aim is to inform, not to suggest. This week, I want to start out with a big thank you to the listeners who filled out the survey that I had up for a week. I'm going to discuss the results of the survey in a moment because they are quite interesting. But first, I need to make a quick announcement, and that is that I need to take a sort of working vacation from this podcast until August of 2018. And the reason is that it looks like I will be involved in a couple of blockchain projects myself. And there is no possibility of my producing this podcast during that time. When those two projects stabilize, uh, I believe that will be in August. And once the projects are underway, I will certainly be able to return. And I am sure that I will return much wiser and better. For those of you that have provided me with your email address, I will be sending out information from time to time with content that is similar to this podcast, unless, of course, you tell me to stop doing that. And for anyone else who didn't give me their email address, you're more than welcome to connect with me on LinkedIn uh, or even Twitter, although I'm pretty horrible at Twitter. Maybe I'm too old for it, but I'm way better on LinkedIn. Uh, But I will monitor both of those channels. Uh, I do anyway on LinkedIn all the time, and I will respond. And if you send me your email address, uh, I will be able to send out periodic analyses because I'm going to continue to be involved in the community. It's just that I won't be able to produce this broadcast for the next five months. In the meanwhile, I first of all just want to hope that I have provided you over the last five months with a solid foundation to analyze upcoming ICOs. And I just want to recap really quickly. Focus on the team, not just who they are, but please try to imagine what they would have to lose if they crashed and burned or worse, ran away with the money. You know, these social profiles that we construct now in this new age of information, maybe the age of face, I guess you could call it, I think they're surprisingly powerful. I I think it's relatively rare that people who have careers, public careers, professional futures, futures at all, would, would risk 
being widely perceived as criminals or scammers. People make mistakes, no question about it. But when you see these outright scams, I think that it's not usually by professionals with public profiles and long track records. It's usually what we used to call shady characters. Maybe we still call them that. But it's usually people who are not very forthright with who they are in the first place. So try to imagine when you look at a team, imagine the worst and just try to get a sense of what that might mean to them. That's one sort of not precise way to, uh, to, to it's not scientific by any means, but it, it's a gut feeling, so to speak. Next, think about the use of the token and about their business model. Is, is this just another blockchain wrapper, so to speak, on an existing company or even on an imaginary company? Is there no middle tier to remove from the equation to save someone a great deal of money or time or effort? Think about the token and the token economics. Does the way that the token's going to be used work and make sense? Would you use it? Think about the way that they're doing their ICO. I know that this is a moving target. I totally understand that. But is it going to be an obvious target of a regulatory nightmare by the SEC or by some other regulatory body in some other country maybe that would end up destroying the value of the token? For instance, if all the assets were frozen and the coin value goes to zero. And how many tokens are going to be released? Are there tens of billions of tokens? Is there a chance that the token could ever have any substantial value? Just in terms of supply and demand. Think about the way the token's going to be used in terms of benefit. Is the use of the token going to benefit the users enough to allow them to prefer it over the use of fiat currency? Think about the use of the blockchain. Can you substitute the word blockchain with the word database in every reference of the white paper and still achieve the same fundamental result? If you can, maybe the use case isn't so strong for a blockchain anyway. This is very important as well. What are other people saying? People that may know more than you. People that may know more than all of us. What are they saying on Bitcoin talk in response to the announcement, if there is one, or on Reddit, or on Twitter? How are the people running the ICO responding to these questions on Bitcoin talk and on Reddit and other places? Better than that, what does the Telegram or Discord or Slack channel feel like to you? What are the proceeds of the sale actually going to be used for? How long will you have to wait for the tokens to be issued? This is especially true now with uh, the simple agreement of future tokens. Can you wait that long? Are you willing to wait that long? If there is no SAFT and if they're going to launch the token immediately and then it's going to hit exchanges soon thereafter, will you be disappointed if the value of the token drops after the ICO and yet before the team makes good on the promises? So all of these questions that we've been asking and discussing for the last five months should be the same questions that you ask and you discuss when you consider investing in one of these ICOs. So I feel like if you take some time to do that and methodically 
hit those points that you'll be doing yourself a favor in terms of your choices. So look, the survey's over and I really appreciate the feedback. Wide range of opinions. I wouldn't expect anything less of the really interesting and diverse group of people who listen to this podcast. What I discovered through this survey is that while about 60% of the listener base of this podcast listens to the show chiefly for ICO analysis for the purpose of potentially participating in ICO, there's another 40% that actually does not listen for that reason. Almost everyone, though, was unanimous that the podcast would benefit from a little more variety. Almost everyone said that interviews would be appreciated, and so I will make that happen when I return. There was an interesting category that surfaced several times, and so I'll be sure to honor it. More coverage of the type of coin that is released without a marketed ICO, but as a mineable coin released in what you might call the old-fashioned method or the classic method, which means not pre-mined, not marketed, and not sold like an ICO. It's interesting, but there was another podcast uh, that I listened to a couple weeks ago where there was someone um, projecting a near future of a lot of coins like that because of SEC regulations. Kind of interesting. Now, if you're looking for examples of what I'm talking about, I'm talking about ROI coin and Raven coin and any number of these uh, POW slash POS, sometimes masternode uh, announcements that you see in Bitcoin talk. Um, in fact, a lot of these are masternode coins. And of course, what you need to be a little bit careful about are these masternode coins that are auctioning off for lots of money masternodes. That's, to me, uh, a perversion, if you will, of the uh, classic release of a coin. I don't believe anyone ever auctioned off masternodes when Dash came out. Examples of the ones that are actually those coins that came out with masternodes that I don't believe there were any auctions was like Polis and Crowdcoin. And of course, Dash. A considerable number of you asked that I cover those coins about as much as I cover the ICOs. And I'm not that surprised because the most popular episode thus far of this podcast was episode 19 about masternodes. And finally, a few of you asked that I go back in time to previously covered ICOs to determine what kind of progress they have made. And you know what? Thank you for that. I was actually planning to do that at about the six-month mark. Since it seems like six months was about the minimum time frame for any kind of decent progress, when I think about the roadmaps that we covered, uh, but you know, we're close enough. We're close enough this episode for me to do that, actually. So in fact, based on that feedback and others, uh, I'll be covering an upcoming ICO, like I usually do, as well as a visit to the status of a previous ICO. Naturally, it's impossible to make every single person who responded to this happy all at once, but I do think that these changes will definitely head toward that direction. So first, I want to cover the upcoming ICO of interest, in my opinion, one of the more interesting ones this week, which is... Ocean Protocol. Now, the basic premise of this ICO and this project is that there is a fundamental problem between artificial intelligence and big data. And that problem is mainly one of availability. The essential 
problem is that AI needs data. And the companies that are focused on AI, on bringing these algorithms and the companies that have the geniuses that are figuring out ways to use big data through artificial intelligence to transform our world just don't have the access to the data that is needed to do all of that transforming. And the companies that have the data do not have the genius algorithms, but also they don't have a lot of incentive to release that data. And very, very few, if any, companies have both the data and the chops, if you will, or the teams of scientists that are working on artificial intelligence. So the fundamental goal to solve this problem is the creation of a marketplace that will allow data to become available for artificial intelligence. Now that's the base concept. Uh, this project is definitely one of the more serious blockchain projects that are coming up in the near future. And there's a lot, as you know, up to upwards of 24, I think, in the next week or two. There's a great deal of dense reading available if you are so inclined for this Ocean Protocol project. I'm talking about a 53-page technical white paper, which, to be honest, is about as technical as I have seen a 69-page business white paper, although I should probably point out that 16 of those pages are disclaimers and cautionary statements, very common these days, but nonetheless contains a, a large amount of information about the token, about the underlying economics of the marketplace. And then there's another 25-page paper devoted to explaining the data exchange protocol, that is the marketplace of data as well as the entire ecosystem that sort of works together to ensure that data makes its way where it needs to go to be utilized by algorithms, but also in keeping with the data safety and privacy regulatory aspects of our modern world. Let's talk about the team. It should be understood at the outset that this project is coming from two other well-known projects in the space, specifically BigChainDB and DEX. In my opinion, BigChainDB is one of the most legit blockchain projects out there. It started all the way back in 2013 with a project called Ascribe, which was mainly a blockchain project that tracked intellectual property in an immutable ledger that was actually based on the Bitcoin protocol. Now remember, back in 2013, that was pretty much the only game in town. This team, Big Chain DB, or Ascribe, actually, before Big Chain DB, were obviously ahead of their time. They were certainly one of the people who alerted the world to the fact that you could put more than just transactions, financial transactions, on the blockchain. But as they began to develop Ascribe, they realized and ran into some scalability problems that they had to solve. Now, we've talked about those very same scalability problems not just transaction speeds, but also fees as well. And they spent some time trying to modify the Bitcoin protocol to scale it and to do what they needed it to do. But they found that instead of that, it might be better to look at some existing very, very scalable centralized solutions and thought to themselves, wait a second, instead of trying to scale a blockchain, what if we 
blockchainified something that was already very scalable. I think they sort of coined that term. So they essentially took a look at some databases and some modern databases, by the way. I mean, many of you might be familiar with SQL, you know, a, a standard relational database. But there's some very interesting databases out there that are not SQL. In fact, they're literally no SQL databases like MongoDB and so forth. But let's just take a break for a second and let's try to define this uh, interesting verb blockchainify. So when we want to blockchainify something, we need it to have the following characteristics, a very simple character. I know you know these, but let's just start at the beginning like we like to do on this podcast. First of all, it's decentralized. So whatever it is we're going to mutate, whatever scalable solution we have, it needs to be decentralized. It can't be completely centralized. Secondly, it's immutable or at least extremely tamper resistant. And thirdly, it needs to contain an asset where the owner of the asset is actually the owner of a private key that unlocks that asset. We've talked about this before, such that wallets are nothing more than collections of private keys that allow you to claim assets that already exist on the blockchain. So those are the three essential points of blockchainification, if you will. So they worked on a few different databases and they settled on RethinkDB. And for those database people out there, RethinkDB is one of those NoSQL databases that stores its data in JSON format. It's similar in some ways to MongoDB, but it also has some characteristics of Cassandra, which you might know about because that's what Netflix uses. Anyway, the developers of the project spent the better part of 2015 tweaking RethinkDB and imbuing it with the characteristics of blockchain. And that baby that they produced uh, was launched in 2016 as BigChainDB. This company didn't do an ICO. They secured um, a total of about $5 million in private equity. Uh, between Ascribe and BigChainDB, they try to transform themselves from Ascribe, same team, into BigChainDB. And uh, they launched a nonprofit, actually named the Interplanetary Database, or IPDB, which was a laudable effort to try to open up the world of data. And unfortunately, uh, it actually proved to be pretty expensive to maintain, and it was just shut down a few weeks ago, as a matter of fact. Uh, but they explained it well, and, and, we, and we'll go into that a little bit. Um, I think that you can say that the Ocean Protocol is a, is a natural and obvious evolution from the lessons learned by BigChainDB and IPDB. And you'll actually see that very well reflected in the various papers that they have published. In fact, I'm going to quote, from, I don't usually do this, but I'm going to quote uh, from the business white paper where they're very open and they say, Ocean Protocol is the sum of everything we have learned through our mutual journey to develop blockchain technology, our deep experience in AI, and our expertise in big data and data exchanges. So one thing that I didn't mention too much was DEX, the other side of this, the other team that's bringing this into uh, existence. 
Ocean Protocol is also DEX, which is a data exchange. Now, the team for this Ocean Protocol project is necessarily large, uh, 33 people, actually. And if you take some time to investigate the background of these people, they are very talented people. They've been in this blockchain space for several years now, which is more than most can say, working very seriously in this space. If you just take the GitHub link of any of the developers and trace it down a little bit, I think you'll be impressed. I decided to have a quick look at uh, the first one I came across, Mike Anderson. No less than 88 repositories of code on GitHub. Made over 615 contributions over the last year. A lot of them using Clojure programming language, which is very interesting. It's, a, it's essentially a, a dialect of Lisp. Uh, it's very good for performance, by the way. So like Walmart actually uses a custom closure system that they developed to handle the transactions on Black Friday, if you want to get a sense of the, you know, kind of scalability that this thing has. And they said it was all handled without a scratch. Um, there's others who have been in the project all the way back to a scribe, uh, Sylvain Bellamar. Over 186 repositories and contributed a thousand times last year. A great deal of it around Big Chain DB and a scribe. So if you look at this team and you look at the LinkedIn for the ones that have LinkedIn profiles, if you look at the GitHub profiles, you I would be very surprised if you didn't come away impressed. And when I look at that team, and I think about my own experience in developing software over the years, uh, I my conclusion is that if there's anybody who's going to be able to pull what they're trying to pull off in this white paper, I, I think it's them, actually. Let's talk about those white papers, actually. Uh, the technical white paper is almost too dense and extensive for me to even possibly summarize well in this format, in this podcast. But there are some really interesting points that I'd like to highlight about it. A significant piece of this protocol relies on what is known as a curation market, which means that the data service provider that makes data available to the network will stake, if you will, the data to get it started. But then the network users can then bet on the value of the data, if you will. If the data proves to be valuable and consumed by many clients, then those that bet on the value of the data, those people who are staking it, are rewarded accordingly. So that's kind of interesting. And to help you imagine how this network will be used, it's useful to identify those stakeholders and what type of reward they will get in return for their participation. There is the provider, usually the owner of the data, and those are the people who release it to the network. And they would be rewarded in tokens, obviously, for making the data available in the first place. Then there are those that refer the data, or maybe curate it, as I just described. Uh, this may actually be an exchange, uh, depending, or maybe a hosting service that will make the data available and make it and sort of scrub it in a way that will make it sort of palatable to the regulatory agencies that are concerned about privacy. Those people might be called curators or hosters, and we describe the curation marketplace, but they're obviously rewarded on the popularity and then the ensuing consumption of the data that they're scrubbing or offering. 
Then there are verifiers, and those are people that are running verification nodes, and they would be rewarded for verification in sort of a similar manner to those that verify blocks on the Bitcoin network. The consumer of the data are the ones that supply the network with tokens because they are ultimately the consumers and they will pay for the access to the data. And of course, what they get in return is the data that they are looking for and the data that they will use in their science or whatever technology they're bringing around for us. And lastly, there's these so-called keepers of the network. And those are certain type of nodes that maintain the security of the network by running full nodes for the blockchain or blockchains, since the white paper describes a multi-chain architecture, complete with atomic swaps as required between chains and so forth. One of the other interesting things that I found about this white paper that's sort of distinctive is that there's a strong identity and governance component. And if you read the brief explanation of why the IPDB, that's the interplanetary database, remember, that was shut down just a few weeks ago, you actually see the sentence, and I'm quoting again, we confronted the reality of data protection law. Now that says a lot in just a few words. And in the paper, there are plenty of references to privacy and the need to provide privacy protection while maintaining transparency for artificial intelligence algorithms to provide these world-changing benefits. But if you think about it, one of the most difficult aspects of providing useful data is, in fact, that tension between privacy and usefulness. How do you scrub data to preserve privacy without reducing the value of the data? Now, some of this is addressed in the frequently asked questions at the end of the white paper, where they discuss the general data protection regulations in Europe, which go into effect actually in a few months of this year. The response mainly is that DEX, the data exchange, that is the other half of the team that I mentioned, is developing software to allow data sets to comply with these types of aggressive privacy laws and still provide useful data. One of the things that I particularly liked about this white paper was a section that I have not really seen before in white papers, it was 15 major devil's advocacy type of concerns addressed over about eight pages in an appendix. Everything from concerns about proof of stake to block rewards for on-premise data. In fact, actually, there's nine such appendices. To be honest, I don't think I remember ever reading something so rigorous and so honest and with decent responses as if they had had conversations with skeptics and anticipated those conversations. Let's talk about the business viability. There is no question that access to data is a major concern. There was a study done by the Publishing Research Consortium with about 3,800 scientists a few years ago where they ranked data access as number one in terms of the importance to carry out their work. And yet at the same time, less than 40% of those people said that they actually had the access that they needed. So it's clear that there's a pressing need for this kind of thing, one way or another, to free up data sets. In terms of tokenization, I think it makes sense to use a token because it would be rather difficult logistically to attempt to use fiat currencies 
to reward based on various algorithms because the international nature of data and the various fiat currencies, but also because you've got all these different actors and you've got to reward them accordingly for the things that they do, for the proof of their activity. It just makes a lot of sense to me to use a token to reward the stakeholders in that kind of data-driven algorithmic environment. Let's talk about that token, actually. A symbol would be OCN, and the pre-sale launch will occur the first week of March 2018. There is a whitelisting process that begins on February 15th, so that was about 10 days ago, and the token is being launched using the SAFT model, where the network and the token distribution will occur in the first quarter of 2019. If you invest in this ICO, you will not see your tokens for almost a year. The pre-sale has a hard cap of 9 million euro or 11 million US dollars. During pre-launch, the price of the token is about 25 cents US dollars. The pre-sale is open to accredited US and Canadian investors only. There's a public distribution of the token starting March 7th, 2018. And again, that's open to qualified investors. Let's talk about the community. There was no official announcement on Bitcoin Talk, but there was someone who posted an unofficial announcement in the sense that it was just a Bitcoin Talk member alerting the community to the project. There are 14,000 members on the Telegram group, and the executive team is very active on the channel. The answers, from what I could see, were thoughtful and pretty informative. For instance, Bruce Pond, the first team member listed, just today launched into a lengthy explanation about token velocity and how there needs to be some engineering done in an effort to stabilize the economy of a token when you're creating an ICO. Kind of interesting. He described some tactics that will be tried, but as he pointed out, there's not a lot of empirical data to draw upon in order to try to attempt to stabilize that. My overall takeaway is that this is a very serious project that is contributing to the validation of the blockchain community in general and to projects. This is a legit project and you don't see too many of them these days. I just feel like this stands out. The team is solid with a lot more experience in blockchain development than just about any team I've seen in a while. And uh, the project addresses what I consider to be a pressing need, data availability. So I wish them the best on their project. Okay, so in keeping with a few suggestions that I received through the survey, I'm going to go back to a project that I covered five months ago in the very first episode, Atlant. Now, if you remember, Atlant was planning to develop a blockchain solution to allow shared ownership and commercial real estate property using a token tied to a special purpose vehicle for real estate ownership. This was commercial real estate ownership. It was also going to provide peer-to-peer -peer rentals to take on the likes of Airbnb using blockchain technology for residential real estate. Now, at the time of the ICO, a person was able to obtain between 450 and 500 tokens for one Ether, which at the time put the price of the ATL token at around 62 cents. At one point in January of this year, just before this last major market correction, the price of the token was as high as $2.40. Then it crashed along with most of the market, like many, many other tokens, and it hasn't really yet recovered. Right now, it's trading at about 46 cents. Actually, interestingly enough, it depends on what exchange. While I'm at it, I should point out that there might be something to be said for what you might call exchange arbitrage. 
that would be where you could buy tokens on one exchange at a given price and potentially sell them at another exchange at another price. Uh, you might ask how this could actually work, and I'm not really able to tell you that it does or doesn't, but I've heard people talking about this in various Discord and Telegram channels, and I think all it takes is for you to look at the coin market cap listing for ATL, and you'll be able to see what I'm talking about. For instance, ATL trades on OKX, OKEX, or OK Exchange, whatever you want to call it. It's a Chinese exchange for $0.46 cents worth of BTC. But on IDEX, which is an exchange for Ethereum-based ERC-20 tokens, which ATL is, the price is about $1.25 worth of Ether. Sort of a couple of different arbitrages going that way. One currency on one side, one currency on the other, but yet at the same time, very different pricing when you compare it to fiat, to US dollars. So that's a pretty good example of a pretty extreme spread between exchanges. Now, you might ask why anyone would use IDEX over OKX. Actually, it turns out that U.S. customers are not allowed at OKX, and they are at IDEX. So that's one reason. Also, on the Atlant Telegram channel, I heard a lot of people raving about how great IDEX was. So there are plenty of people using it for whatever reason. And yet, it seems, in respect to ATL, that they're paying more than double for the ATL tokens. Now, in terms of the Telegram channel and the project in general, there are a few traders who invested in ATL a while ago grumbling about the price, but by and large, there's quite a bit of anticipation because it seems as though Atlant is planning to meet their roadmap promise of launching the network in March of 2018, just a couple weeks away. So if you believe that ATL will gain a boost when the network indeed goes live, you might consider the current price of $0.46 cents to be a bargain. Of course, if you happen to be a U.S. citizen, you may have a little trouble getting that price without the use of a virtual private network or whatever. I don't know, maybe more, depending on the requirements of OKX. In addition to the promise of the network being launched as early as, I don't know, a few weeks from now, we can see that the Atlant team has been busy in attending various conferences, speaking at events as well as publishing. They're also quite active on Telegram, even now answering questions about the project. So this may prove to be a project that actually comes through on its promises. And there does seem to be a certain level of excitement. As one Telegram member put it, maybe somewhat tongue-in-cheek, I can't wait to own 0.000001% of a New York skyscraper. <laughs> okay, so that's the retrospect. Now, in keeping with some more feedback that I got from this fantastic survey, thank you again. Uh, those of you who asked for more information about masternodes, from one perspective, you could say that it has been a veritable bloodbath of masternode failures. Me, myself, I literally lost thousands of dollars because I just didn't get out quick enough for some of them. One particular disaster for me was Cerberus. However, some people may actually see this price destruction as an opportunity, and I guess I'm one of those people. <laughs> so what I did this morning was do some heavy research for all these coins that have fallen so very far, picked one of them under a dollar, and purchased enough coins for a full masternode. Now, I'll explain that I did this mainly to learn how to set up and get running a Linux masternode. Secondarily, it's maybe because, who knows, I might actually recoup some of those losses I was just talking about. But really, I'm just the kind of person 
who doesn't feel like they truly understand something until I do it myself. So I have to do it. So I bought a thousand coins on South Exchange. I'm going to be firing up this masternode pretty soon. Anybody who ends up sending me their email address, I'll let them know how it went. How did I arrive at the choice? I basically visited the Discord channel. I spent a lot of time on the different channels inside each Discord server for each coin that had fallen under a dollar. I looked around to see if the master nodes were still functional from a technical perspective. That was mainly by seeing if anyone was complaining. I downloaded each wallet and made sure the wallet was still functional. And then I went to masternodes.online and I checked the chart. If you go down and scroll down on masternodes.online, you'll see this chart that's price. Everybody stares at the price and freaks out, but it's not just about the price. It's about the masternodes. So if you deselect masternodes in the upper left, I made sure that the coins that I looked at that I had any interest in whatsoever, the masternode graph was going up while the price went down. So if you see all of those things that there's not anybody freaking out about technology in, in the Discord channel, the dev seems to actually just be around and saying something, you know, here and there, we haven't left, or whatever. You know, if there's some kind of valid reason for the price destruction, uh, fine. Anyway, that was my method, and that's what I did. So I am not obviously recommending that you do that, uh, but if you believe in the fundamental concept of the masternode idea and what it means, then I think there's still room to look at this as a way of investing in cryptocurrency. Now, the other thing is, what is the coin that you're investing in going to be used for? Would you ever consider using it? Would you ever consider using it for anything? If the answer to that is yes, and all of those other things are in place, then it's conceivable that it might make sense to jump in where you can pick up a masternode for about a tenth of what you would have a few weeks ago. It's relatively low risk uh, for reward ratio there, potentially. Of course, it could go to zero too, you know. And one last thing that I will leave you with uh, that was interesting uh, from a news perspective, there was this interesting front page headline where uh, the owner of Overstock.com, who has always been a blockchain enthusiast and in fact who began to allow Bitcoin to be used to purchase Overstock.com items a while back, one of the pioneers, uh, mentioned that in a little-known token that nobody knew about, uh, that they've invested millions of dollars. He, I think he said something like, uh, just, as, just like Bitcoin, but better, or some offhand comment like that. Ravencoin, of all things. It's interesting because there was some chat about that. I think it was on Bitcoin Talk, or maybe it was in Discord, where they were talking about the owner of Overstock.com and how he was telling employee, his employees to go buy this, go buy this currency. <laughs> but yeah, Ravencoin. Very interesting. So that that's a project that I continue to be very interested in, and um, and and I'm just enjoying mining right now. Really enjoying the mining of it. I re I recognize that it's one of these coins that has a, a ridiculously large number of coins, so the chances of it ever going to some kind of crazy valuation are pretty slim. 
But uh, with headlines like that, you never know, right? Anyway, I hope everyone has a great uh, five months. And if you want to continue to uh, hear from me from time to time, by all means, connect with me however way works for you. Thank you and have a, a good week and have a good few months. Talk to you in August of 2018.